Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome back to another episode of TV Show and Tell, your inside lane on the busy highway of the TV formats business. I'm David Bodicum. I'm a producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, and I'm known internationally as the Format Doctor. And our special guest today is Luke English, a highly experienced media lawyer who's worked with high-profile artists, indies, and corporate giants such as Sony and Disney. He guides us through the foothills of the mountainous terrain of intellectual property and rights protection. And we'll have another one of our jargon busters coming up, and we'll be chatting about the redemption of reality stars. And I believe, Justin, you've just come back from your travels. Where have you been off to this time? I've been in Cologne in Germany for an interesting event. Uh, it was the second of its kind called the IP Exchange. So I don't know if you know this, but the major distributors tend to get their production companies that they own together before the major markets uh, for a day or for a weekend to share their IP. So the the different production companies pitch their ideas uh, and their existing formats to each other mm-hmm. um, with the idea that they'll be co-produced or that the production company in a different country will then pitch it to their broadcaster as well. It's quite often the origin of a lot of the deals that are announced at Bitcom, <laughs> because what they're announcing is that one of their companies sold a format to another of their companies. Oh, um, all the business is done before people have even arrived. <laughs> well, a lot of it is, to be honest. That's the truth of it, because there's only two days of actual big work at BIP. So that you're quite right. Most of the deals are done uh, before everyone's arrived. But it's particularly incestuous when you're actually selling it to yourself. As you can imagine, that kind of locks out independent producers and format creators Mm. because they're not part of those big companies. And as there's more and more and more convergence of these big companies, there's less and less opportunities. So uh, two friends of mine, Sandra Lehner and Wolfgang Link. Um, Sandra's been on the show, on this show before, talking about Gen Z, came up with the wheeze of creating Uh, an IP exchange specifically for independent distributors and independent format owners. So it was a two-day event uh, out of film studios in Cologne. And essentially what happened over those two days was that producers and distributors took turns to present their formats to each other. And that was interspersed with chats with people like me. I did an interview about, about my work um, so that it was a slightly more rounded uh, experience of creators talking to each other and sharing what they do. But it was great fun, and it was a really good atmosphere, and it felt it felt like something zeitgeisty. I do believe that in most businesses, you get to a point where companies get larger and larger, and they converge more and more and more, and then there comes a point, a tipping point, where those companies become all about profit and churn and the talent starts to leave 
and set up on its own. Mm. And I do feel like in television we've reached that point. Is this something that anybody can buy a ticket and rock up to next year? Yeah. Yeah, you have to pay to go. But apart from that, anybody can go. Hmm, interesting. And I think it's something that will just grow and grow. And, the, you know, the bigger it gets, the more of a movement it will become. So, yeah, look out for that. IP exchange. Well, while you've been away, we, we are continually <laughs> being uh, overtaken by the Americans. Uh, because to add to Password and Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, which it's now been piloted uh, that we're having a pyramid um, oh, as well. <laughs> And uh, apparently, uh, according to the reports, it's being hosted by Jane McDonald, um, oh. i.e. The, the Channel 5 ratings winner um, oh. over here. And comeback queen. <laughs> Indeed. So, <laughs> well, yeah, she sort of, sort of left it a bit of a half, didn't she? And then they some, somehow said the right mood music to bring her back and, and bring her ratings back with her uh, to, right. ch- to Channel 5. So, um, yeah, I, I don't really understand where this um, trend for these American staples has come from, other than they're known factors, they're relatively low risk and... Uh, I, I suppose they're known to work, but also, it's the, I'm sure there are original ideas that are being pitched to these channels. Um, yeah. Well, I think you've said it. I think it's about being risk-averse, number one. It's simply that people want a formula that they know will work. There's also a fair amount of rebooting going on, which I have to say I'm also partly responsible for. <laughs> Creatively, it's a lot of fun to reboot these shows. But what they have is a very strong and also very simple structure, which allows you, when you reboot them for the 21st century, to add a bit of an edge, uh, add some different feel to it, build a new set, and so on and so on, knowing that the actual game works. So, uh, yeah, I think I think that's a big part of it. Anything else you've got? Um, I just wanted to mention America's Got Talent, Um as you know, Got Talent is a franchise around the world and probably the biggest beast in the jungle is America's Got Talent. They have announced a new spin-off of the franchise. That's new to the franchise, but just listen to the details and tell me how new you think this is. So it's called America's Got Talent Fantasy League, mm-hmm. which will premiere next year on NBC. Basically, America votes, obviously the whole of America votes, um, for the winners, finalists, viral sensation, fan favourites, that sort of thing, from all the GT franchises around the world. And then the judges will pick 10 acts each to make up their fantasy team. Uh-huh. And then these acts will compete against each other in the sort of fairly standard Got Talent form. Uh-huh. But obviously this time the judges are invested in their team and so they then will work alongside them across the competition to mentor them and to improve their acts and, and so on. And then they press the button and the chair spins round. And... <laughs> exactly. Mm. <laughs> That's the new franchise part, exactly. And the golden buzzer has also been given a, an extra power. So as well as, as well as being able to send an act straight to the final, um, they can also use it to steal an act from another judge's team. Which is also a voice mechanic. Yeah, I know. Tell me about it. Mm. 
So it does feel to, you know, people who like talent shows, it's a bit of a bit of a Frankenstein, to be honest, mm. um, in terms of, you know, literally taking elements from a from another show and grafting it onto your format and then presenting it as something new. Mm. But there you go. So, well, it'd be interesting to see if Britain's Got Talent goes the same way. Media rights and intellectual property protection is one of the least understood areas of law. Luckily, media lawyer Luke English dropped in earlier to put us on the right track. Anyone who's worked in the TV industry is at some point or other going to find themselves signing on the dotted line. So whether you're a presenter or an actor or a singer or a songwriter, a producer, director, creator, the list goes on, you will have to come to terms, literally, with a legal department keen to tie you up in perpetuity and throughout the universe. At which point you need Luke the Lawyer, aka Luke English, Luke has worked as a legal advisor for the BBC, Walt Disney and Sony Music, and with many artists and managers, including Bring Me the Horizon, One Direction, Rita Ora and Labyrinth. And he also wears a very different hat with his podcast, What Heroes Do, which uniquely celebrates fictional and real life heroes. We'll talk about that as well. But for the meantime, welcome, Luke. Thank you for having me. To dive in, uh, your main job is drafting and reviewing and negotiating agreements, yeah? That's correct. So I referenced some of those killer contract terms in my introduction, and I thought I might just start with those because I know they're also bugbears of yours. So what does in perpetuity mean? Forever and a day. That's the easiest way to describe (laughs) it. In, in the UK, we have copyright law, and depending on what you're copywriting, if you say life of copyright, it could be 50 years after the creation or 70 years after someone's death, etc. But when you talk about in perpetuity, you're talking about forever and a day. That's always a scary word when, when you see it, and you have to really decide whether whatever you've created, you're going to give it to that person for forever and never see it back again. And there are some contracts that say in perpetuity throughout the known universe. Have lawyers even covered the multiverse? Well, some people might say that lawyers are from another universe, and I totally (laughs) understand that. But as far as I'm concerned, yes, we haven't quite uh, breached the multiverse. Um, One of my bugbearers as a lawyer is when someone writes, we will have your rights for the world and then they change it from world to universe, or they ask for the universe. I had a disagreement with a well-known music publisher where they had written that, and I explained to them that, uh, as far as I was aware, we hadn't colonised Mars yet, let alone the rest of the universe. <laughs> and uh, and he replied, well, maybe we might. And I said, well, maybe you want to quadruple the fee you're going to give my client. <laughs> um, of which, f- funnily enough, they then backed down and said, okay, for this instance, we'll agree the world. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, so the universe for me is a little step too far. E- even to be really pedantic, even the world, there are some countries that don't have certain access to Netflix and Spotify and wherever your product is going to be produced. So even the world's a bit of a push, but general consensus is, okay, we'll grant world rights. I mean, I remember one of my shows, the American distributor wanted the world rights rights 
And we said, well, we'd like to keep the Asia-Pacific rights. And they said, no, 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 we want the world rights. And they, they always do this thing where they say, that's our standard clause. And we said, but you haven't got any offices in Asia-Pacific region at all. Mm. So you've got no one to sell it there. So nobody is going to sell it there. You don't represent that area. And we did manage to get a separate distributor for that region. And I guess that's what's behind this whole kind of perpetuity throughout the known universe, blah, blah, blah. It's that kind of blanket control that people want. I I agree, Justin. And actually, that's what you're saying is very, very sensible. It's looking at the person or company or whoever it is that's taking your rights and mm. can they actually do exactly what they said they're going to do? Are they a massive international, almost worldwide company? Therefore, you know what? They might well be able to exploit what I'm giving you worldwide. Or actually, are they only based in the UK and they're going to have to get lots and lots of mini little deals going on outside of the UK, in which case, as you say, if you're sensible, you can say, well, I tell you what, I think I've probably got a better deal in North America or Australasia or wherever. So why don't I reserve those rights and then do a separate deal for this particular product? You mentioned North America. That's always a bugbear in the formats business because people always want to take North America. But that, of course, uh, means that the Canadian rights have gone. (laughs) So a lot of uh, a lot of people find that they can't sell a show into Canada because the North American rights are tied up, even though the Americans have got no interest in making this show for Canada. Uh, so whenever I'm dealing with Canadians, the first thing they always ask is, have you signed away the North American rights? Yeah, all very, very sensible. So my last uh, bugbear phrase uh, is sunset clause. Mm-hmm. So explain sunset clause, because I know that's something that catches people out big time. So a a sunset clause, uh, in my experience, only comes along, particularly in the the music industry, and relates to a uh, music manager contract, um, where where it's very, very common. A sunset clause basically means the sun has set on that contract, so the contract has expired. However, in, in the UK, it's standard for a a music manager to receive 20% gross of all the artist's income, wherever that may come from. Now, the sunset clause will say, right, after the contract expired, I'm still entitled to, I'm going to give an example, 20% for another two years, and then a 10% for another two years, and then 5% for another year. Now, when you say that out loud, that sounds horrific. But then when you actually look at what they're asking for is, they are only entitled to this money for work that they have done during the contract. So, for example, say if I'm an artist, I've worked with a manager and I've released a song with, you know, whilst I was with them, 20% of that song, because I, I created that whilst I was with them, the income from that song goes to the manager for that further period of time. So those, for those five years, the, the two, the two and the one at 20%, then 10%, then 5%, because the manager has brought them perhaps from a nothing artist to a well-known artist and helped to increase their, their revenues. And they could be at the hype of their career right now, mm-hmm. and then the manager's mm-hmm. contract's gone and the manager's not going to ever make any more money. Whereas the manager's argument is, look, I brought you from nothing to something, and therefore I need to continue to be paid something 
for the work I've done with you. It is very common. It, it, it sounds horrific, but actually, uh, if you're thinking from a manager's point of view, if you've spent three, four years working with an artist and building them up, you might not have actually got paid anything for the first year, maybe two years. So actually, you're reaping the rewards on the, the back end. Because of all your experience in the, in the music business, what do you think of the kind of deals that people sign for things like talent shows? Because anecdotally, we believe that people who are contestants on those shows sign away huge amounts of, of rights and things just in order to be, you know, to be a contestant. Yes, it, it's always a bone of contention. I, I've been fortunate I've worked with X Factor artists, I've worked with The Voice artists, so I've seen both those contracts. Mm. And and you are right to be transparent, and it, most of this information you'll find on the internet, the, the uh, performance forms that they fill in are whatever I say, whatever I do, whatever you record of me is yours and you can do what you like with it. Mm. And as you say, in exchange for that, I have the opportunity to hopefully win a talent show. Yeah. Yeah, there, there are some ex-contestants of this that have been quite vocal about those contracts and saying that they should never have been signed and it's not fair. Now, I don't disagree with some of the comments, but the problem is that most of those shows now have expired. If they were current, I think it would be worth talking about and there being a campaign about it. But because they're no longer current, it's very difficult to scream and shout too much about them. But uh, again, this is where, of course, you, you, you get a legal advisor to come on board to look at those contracts and to say, excuse me, you, you can have this, but you can't have that. And what would you do with that anyway if I gave it to you? And just the last thing on, on the music side, and only because it fascinates everybody, riders. Mm -hmm. Okay, so have you been <laughs> have you been involved in contracts that have had uh, extraordinary or interesting riders? And if so, what can you tell us? <laughs> to be honest with you, most of the riders that I I have seen of established artists and and lesser artists, most of them because of them performing, is actually I, I want water or I want I want <laughs> I want you know hot water with lemon in it or you know I I want green tea. You know, it's very rare these days that it wants, I want, you know, 50 boxes of Budweiser and I want, you know, Dom Perignon <laughs> champagne and I, you know, for the after party, maybe, but for the pre when I'm arriving, actually, that's no good for my voice. And, you know, th this is the voice is the moneymaker. And if I'm drinking something that's going to dry my voice out, that's not a good move. <laughs> Mark Owen from Take That was on the radio this morning. He said, originally we would ask for loads of beers, but nobody would drink them. But now we're like been in the business for 30 years. On my rider, I ask for sugar-free chocolate. That's, that's as head hedonistic as he gets these days. <laughs> it's, all, it's all very disappointing. Exactly. Even Take That didn't drink all the beers, see? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, you worked at the BBC. Yes, in the rights clearance department, I believe. Mm. So let's talk about the kind of things that need to be cleared. My job was to clear independent productions that the BBC had bought, but the original producers hadn't perhaps cleared it correctly or as thoroughly as they should have done. I remember one particular programme I was asked to clear was a documentary. I'm afraid I don't recall the title, but it basically was a documentary about a, a baby that that grew up in, in the jungle. Um, it's a true story. And so your immediate go-to is the Jungle Book. Ah. And so 
my, my, my job was to go to Disney, who obviously owns the, the original cartoon, and say, Dear Disney, we would like to use 10 seconds clip of the Jungle Book in this documentary. And the documentary is, you know, it's obviously not based on the, on the cartoon. It's based on real life. Please, can you let us know how much that's going to cost? And sadly, the figure for the license for the 10 second clip was not quite, but nearly as much as the cost of the overall documentary. And so <laughs> we had to make an executive decision and actually ditch the documentary. Wow. And so uh, it, just as a word to the wise for those listeners, if you're looking to put um, clips of films in your, in your documentary, in your program, whatever it may be, um, it's always a good idea to think about what's this clip, who owns it, and you know how much is it going to cost me before I go ahead and start um, filming? Because you might have to edit it out at the end. Sorry, <laughs> just to clarify, did you say that they... they, they... Cancel the entire documentary, or just got the. It was put in the documentary in such a way that it there was no way of us to be able to edit it out, and it then still be sustainable. So we had to ditch the entire thing. That's incredible. I did a series called "Who You Calling Stupid" for TLC, which was a a, a show about people doing stupid things. And originally, it was meant to be a, a kind of compilation of people doing stupid things using the, those clips, but the videos were very expensive. And only lasted for ten seconds. And um, you know, we had a series of eight shows to make, so we started to make some of them ourselves. But one of the stories that we came across was a a car chase in Cincinnati, where the criminal had been basically very stupid and had stolen the car with a phone in it. And the police tracked them down by ringing the phone, and the burglars were stupid enough to answer it. Um, they pretended to be pizza people and said, where should they deliver? And the burglars told them, uh, which, <laughs> at which point the police <laughs> went and caught them. Anyway, this was all on body cams and this, that and the other, whatever. So, And when we checked into how much it was going to cost to use the footage, it was cheaper for us to send a crew to Cincinnati and recreate the car chase, which we did. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so music clips is one. What what else? Uh, stills? Um, when you do a shot, perhaps in someone's house, um, where there's pictures of somebody or where there's a famous p uh, painting or, as you say, stills, any form of artwork, actually you've got to get clearance on that to be able to broadcast it in the UK or internationally. Wow. There's... Um, a very famous agency that represents photographers and represents a lot of major artworks, modern and older, um, called Getty Images. Oh, yeah. And so we were constantly in contact with Getty Images to say, is this one of yours? Can we get clearance for this, please? Is this one of yours? Can you get clearance, please? And, and so, yeah, again, you, you have to you have to get clearance. If you've got a, a Monet in your background shot, <laughs> then somebody owns that somewhere down the line. <laughs> so, See, I've had that issue on Only Connect, a show that often uses picture clues. Sometimes we would need a picture of a Monet. And the way we would often get around it would be, we can't show the picture of the Monet, but if Getty Images, our library, had a picture of, say, a auction house porter holding the Monet then that one was seen to be okay. 
But then, like, if that's okay, then why is a picture in somebody's house on Humsons of the Hammer or, or whatever not okay and often has to be blurred out or cut out? Is it just different people have just interpreted differently, I guess? Or? If you've signed up to Getty and Getty represents your works, then they are a very good company to be associated with. I had a situation where a client of mine contacted me and said, Getty um, have contacted us. And I'm, I'm making this figure up, so not to be quoted, but they they want uh, £500 from us. And I said, I don't understand why. And they said, well, it transpires that an intern of ours had gone to the internet, found a picture, put it on our website in, without our, our knowing, and that picture has been on our website for the last year. And we, we didn't realise was it was a copyrighted picture, and Getty owned that picture, and Getty has very good algorithms, particularly on the internet, to find aforesaid pictures mm. and said, you've not had permission to do this for over a year, you owe us £500, and this particular client was banged to rights, so there's nothing I could, there's no defence about it. Mm. You've taken someone's copyright, you've put it on your website, and someone uh, has said to Getty, I want you to represent me as, a, as the uh, copyright holder of that piece. So, Justin, in the, the email that you've sent to me for this week's show, under the heading of topic ideas, you have the heading redemption. So, like, what are you, what are you here to say sorry for? <laughs> so many things, so little time, David. <laughs> well, presumably this is something to do with, I'm guessing, some kind of celebrity reality show. Yes. So... This is just a trend that's, I mean, it's actually been going a long time, but the particular peg for this was, first of all, the return of Matt Hancock yet again to our screens in a reality show after watching all sorts of horrible things being done to him in I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. He's back in the SAS show having all sorts of horrible things done to him. And as with the previous show, He's also uh, taking the opportunity to say, listen, guys, I just fell in love. We all make the mistakes. And by the way, I saved the pandemic. Don't forget. So that was the first thing. The second thing was uh, spotting that John Burko, the former Speaker of the House of Commons, is joining the cast of Traitors in the US. Now, rather weirdly, because of his performance at Prime Minister's Question Time, he has become quite a cult figure in the US, um, sufficient at any rate for him to uh, rank as a celebrity on Traitors. And it did raise the question with me about what I call redemption television or redemption by reality. In other words, if for some reason your public profile has got tarnished and you think that you need to improve your reputation and you sit down with your PR people. What is the conversation when the PR people say, well, I think the way to solve this is <laughs> to go on a reality show and be humiliated? Go into a jungle and eat some wishity grubs and people will love you for it. <laughs> for it. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've seen this with the Hamiltons, we've seen this with, you know, all sorts of people. And it feels like that's almost the first phone call that people are going to make. The moment that we see someone's fall from grace of, of some description, either in public life or, or, or you know, somewhere on television, 
it seems that the next thing that happens is that they pop up on a reality show. Mm. Particularly one that's to do with discomfort and uh, deprivation and so on. Version of tar and feathering <laughs> or a sackcloth yeah. and ashes or something like that. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe it is. But I guess what I'm asking is, I mean, with Matt Hancock as an example, he clearly thinks that this is working. He clearly thinks that, you know, despite what we read with all his WhatsApp messages and all the rest of it, that he is progressing to a point where he is being rehabilitated. And, you know, who knows? Maybe amongst the sort of TikTok generation, he is. You know, maybe maybe we look at it really cynically and say, okay, this is just a desperate attempt to, you know, make some money in order to pay legal fees. You know, maybe other people think, okay, well, here's someone who's, you know, got into trouble for this, that, and the other. And here's a form of public public humiliation after which we draw a line. So uh, as a a previous guest on the show, Graham Stewart, once said, the the best sort of guest is the one that's available. And and, and I suppose, you know, if you're the editor of these, you know, say morning chat shows or, or something like that, and you sort of go... Matt Hancock says he's available tomorrow if you if you if you have a slot for him. I I suppose you'd be mad not to try him. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, obviously, from the program maker's point of view, they yeah they they've got a story attached, and that story is, you know, selling newspapers. And um, certainly, when I worked in daytime at the BBC, you know, we scoured the papers, look for people with a with a topical story, and you know, they were obviously the the immediate people to go for. And I suppose it's also a little bit of it is the, you know, when the newspaper rings up and says, we're going to write a story about you, but this is your opportunity to tell your side of the story, which, um, you know, certainly people do on things like I'm a celebrity and whatever, you know, they, they take their campfire and diary moments to to put their point of view, their, their side of the story, as it were. Mm. And Matt Hancock will always argue that his side of the story is, I fell in love. Yes, I made a mistake. But hey, look, we all fall in love. We all uh, are blinded by love. We all make bad decisions when we're desperately fallen, fallen in love. So I get all of that. I just don't understand. So I, I completely get why TV might want these people on TV. I just don't quite get why these people think that going on TV is going to deliver the redemption that they're looking for well i suppose if they run away and hide then then the only thing that's presented is one side of the argument at least Mm. if they have a platform of whatever type then at least they can put their other side of the argument but i suppose there's also there are some people that i think have tried to come back and it hasn't quite worked out for them i mean i think like michael barrymore for example uh has been on a, a few things and yet he doesn't have the profile that he once did i think mm. i saw him or on twitch playing the the strike it lucky it board game live <laughs> <laughs> he, it was just in his like i know his front room or whatever and he had the boxed version from the like the wow. 1990s or whatever and he was just playing it with uh <laughs> in front of mm. uh, some bemused twitch followers <laughs> when i'm thinking about these things i always think about john profumo he was a government minister in the 1960s who famously or infamously had an affair 
with a 19-year-old model called Christine Keeler. The problem was that she was also having an affair with a Russian naval attaché um, <laughs> who, was, <laughs> who was a spy. Um, and it was a big scandal and he had to resign, blah, blah, blah. So far, so un- unexpected. But the point was he then completely retired from public life devoted himself to charitable work in the East End. And that's what he did for the rest of his life. And the press left him alone, and that's what he went and did. And to me, that is redemption, you know. That is saying, okay, you know, I had my moment in the spotlight. I screwed it up. I made some big mistakes. And whatever I do next, I'm going to atone in some way. But quietly, you know, that's the point, that you can atone quietly. Maybe... In the current, you know, world of mass observation, it's impossible to atone quietly. You know, maybe if any of these people actually turned up at the counter in Oxfam, within seconds they'd be on TikTok and Instagram and, you know, then the press would be there and then they'd have to leave because they were bringing undue attention. Then Oxfam would release a statement saying, we disassociate ourselves and la la la. So, you know, maybe it is just not possible to atone quietly but i do wish they would well i think sometimes it's a case of let's say you're just use a more modern example you're a a youtuber and as often happens some some argument blows up and and you're on the wrong side of it um being a youtuber is all they know (laughs) it's hard for them to (laughs) shuffle off to to the east of of london and, and work in the uh the local branch of Oxfam well that is very true that is very true actually and in a way that's true of politicians as well a lot of them that's their problem when they lose their seats and whatever they don't have another skill set to draw upon so you know they go from a ministerial salary to absolutely zilch so in short the the good news is there's going to be a whole load more of Matt Hancock on our screens yeah yay there we go excellent news (laughs) (laughs) And now it's time to return to our chat with media lawyer Luke English. So presumably big corporations like the BBC, for example, have blanket licences for things as well as sort of individual commercial licences. So, you know, if you're working at the BBC and you want to use a piece of music, then some of that's going to be covered by a blanket licence. Can you, can you just explain the difference? The, the, the BBC and ITV have, uh, as you say, this, this agreement. There are copyright uh, associations, PPL, PRS and MCPS uh, in the UK, and they have an agreement with these organisations who represent the um, original authors or writers or performers of the works, mm. music works. So rather than the BBC and ITV having to every time go back to the original owners, the record labels or the publishers and say, can we get permission for this to be put on EastEnders? Can we get permission for this to go on Coronation Street? The blanket license covers the majority of sound recordings. Now, there are, I, I can't quote you a particular artist, but I believe that there are certain artists that don't subscribe to the blanket license. Mm. And so you still have to go to their record label and or their manager and or their publisher if you want to. And, you know, again, I've I've been informed, although I've I've not fact-checked this, that 
that the likes of Ed Sheeran and perhaps Beyonce and some of these, you know, mega stars, what wouldn't have agreed to the blanket license? Oh, right. You, you have to get permission, which, you know, again, you, you have to make that decision. Do I want to part of this or not part of this? Because I remember various occasions on Big Brother where Big Brother tells contestants to stop singing. Is that is that is that for the same kind of reasons? Or is it just because they're terrible singers? <laughs> <laughs> no no comment on that one. <laughs> but you you're probably right. Again, obviously we, we don't know exactly what they've been singing, but one would imagine they're singing some modern pop song or other. And if that modern pop song isn't part of the blanket license, then then yeah, please refrain from doing that because otherwise we have to then go to Universal or Sony or Warner Brothers or whoever to say, excuse me, please can I have permission, uh, whoever owns the, the, the publishing, because they are singing it, therefore they're using the lyrics, mm. therefore it's a, it's a publishing issue. And I'm told that if this even happens on, in literary circles as well, because if sometimes authors love their characters to like a particular artist or whatever and, and if they start singing a particular song as part of the, the narrative of the book then that has to get struck out as well unless you get clearance for the lyrics because they're copyrighted people forget that if i wrote the lyrics of the song even if i'm not the artist who sung it i own the copyright in that so wherever it's being used there needs to be a permission so as you say if your book is going to be sold more than just you know, on a very basic level here, then the, the likelihood of, of someone picking it up and reading it and saying, oh, they've got, you know, I'm making it up again, Ed Sheeran's lyrics in here. So as you say, you have to go to Ed Sheeran's publishers and say, excuse me, I would like to be able to use this chorus or these lyrics in my book, you know, and, and then you have to go into detail. Well, where's the book being, you know, distributed? Is it just a Kindle version or is it physical? Well, yeah, lots and lots of yeah. different verifications. There's something that a lot of our listeners, um, particularly those in production, might get involved with is location agreements. As program makers, we find ourselves on location, you know, whether we're doing a, a scripted show or an unscripted show. Um, so what kind of things go into a location agreement? What are the kind of red flags or the uh, must-haves for something like that? A location agreement is exactly what it says in the tin, that hmm. I'm sending a contract to somebody who owns a property, whether it's an individual's personal house or whether it's a stately home or something, and I'm requesting to be able to use this for the filming, whether it be one room or whether it be the entire estate. And then, as you say, you've then got to think of the minutiae. I've got the room or I've got the house. Mm. You know, what What can I do with it? You have to think of some, some silly things that you might not think of, like utilities. Um does the fee that I'm paying the person who owns the property, does it mean I can use their gas, their electricity, their water, and that's part of the fee? In the last year or so, when electricity and gas has increased quite a lot, the owners of the property might be a little bit upset if you're draining their electricity every day because <laughs> you're plugging in 50 plugs to make everything work. And then the actual inside of the property, am I allowed to take down all the paintings? Um, it sounds it sounds radical, but am I allowed to paint the walls? Am I allowed to put up my own decoration? Am I allowed to take down the curtains? Am I not allowed to take down the curtains? And if it's wooden flooring, what sounds silly, but what sort of weight could that flooring take? Yeah. You know, what is okay to walk on the wooden flooring? What is not okay with the wooden flooring? You know, is very sharp stiletto shoes appropriate or not? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's a, that's a big one. Yeah. 
And so you've got to think about matting on the flooring and you've got to think about coverings. And then once it's all done, you've then got to think, we have a word called reinstatement, which basically means when it's all finished, I've got to put the room, the house, the wherever I'm in back to as best I possibly can, the original as it it was when I came in the room when I first started. Mm. And that might mean putting back that liquor paint that you've gone and changed or what have you. A film composer that I knew bought a big sort of Victorian pile in in the UK and Ken Russell um, said, I'd love to use it as a location to shoot my movie Gothic in. And he said, that's absolutely fine as long as you don't put it back the way it was. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's quite funny. But uh, sometimes the... That you've got the location, but actually trying to get the equipment that you want into the location. I think you, you mentioned that you had quite a few, was it miles of cables you had to take into work? <laughs> this was for Codex mm. at the British Museum, where, again, part of the location agreement was, yes, we could come in with a crew of 108 and shoot this show through the night, but we had to be out by 8am when the cleaners came in. And at that point, we had to remove everything that we put in and that includes kilometers of cable (laughs) and you know we literally and then at six o'clock that evening we started putting it all back again um in order to start shooting at about 10 looking back it was absolutely crazy but that was the deal and we'd spent so long getting permission to get you know i I think the british museum were used to people filming but they expected to have Mm. you know a sound guy a camera guy and an interviewer and even though they came to our production meetings until the day where you know eight trucks and 108 people turned up they just had no idea of the scale (laughs) that was going to be involved yeah what about catering you know that's the other thing as well catering and toilets are always the secondary thing you've got to think about you know you know can i get a catering van in there or are we going to be living on takeaways because there's not enough room to get a catering van in and then yeah the the age-old question toilets you know if you're getting you know more than two or three people in the premises have we then got to start to go and buy portaloos are there areas that people don't protect but they really should say you're you're a format advisor and you're looking to protect your work the, the key here is you know if someone's coming along and taking my entire format am i giving it away to them for the world am i not giving it away to them for the world in in copyright law we have two things which is very useful information we have something called a license and something called an assignment. And you either license your copyright or you assign your copyright. Now, a license, I'm I'm summarizing here, is a short-term thing-ish of which I will get a fee, but there will be an end date of which I'll be able to get whatever I'm licensing back, Mm. whether it be my format or something else. Whereas an assignment is to give permanently. Right. If I assigned my copyright to you, I can't ever get that back. It, it, it's gone. Um, there is no way of me being able to buy it back from you or ever, ever coming back. They own it for forever and a day, or as we've just discussed, in perpetuity. Whereas a license, there should be a, a length of time on it. And when the license run, runs out, hopefully you'll be able to get it back and then go and sell it to somebody else. In, for example, the music publishing world, you can uh, license your publishing music publishing rights for 10, 15 years. Now, I know that sounds a long time, but 
10, 15 years ago, it used to be life of copyright. And so actually it's been reduced quite significantly. So in 10, 15 years time, I will own back my music publishing and I can then go and find another publisher and then go and license them again. Or, or re-record all of your albums like Taylor Swift did. <laughs> yeah, there's another story there. So, yeah, if you're, if you're you know, looking to, to exploit your format, you've got to think about, well, am I giving it to them permanently? I'm never going to see it ever again, but I'm, giving, I'm going to get a nice fee for it. Or am I going to license it to them for a particular period of time? And then we'll see what happens. If it does well, great, maybe I'll do another license with them. If it doesn't do well, well, okay, well, I'll, I'll have it back and then I'll rejig it and I'll start again. But these contracts can get very messy, can't they? For example, taking the the infamous contract that Celador had uh, with a millionaire in the USA, and that went to several layers of uh, court cases with Disney, I think it eventually came to the stage when the judge said, well, there's probably three valid ways of, of interpreting the, the wording and the numbers in this contract. And it's over to you, the jury, to, to decide what you think was the correct one. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, like, how complicated must this have been for there to be three valid different ways of interpreting the numbers? Obviously, I, I don't know the case inside out, but my personal opinion would be, well, perhaps the drafting wasn't particularly clear. <laughs> And my job as a lawyer, believe it or not, is actually try and make the drafting as clear as possible. Because I actually, I, I don't want my drafting of my contract to end up in front of a high court judge going, I don't actually know what this means. It could mean this, it could mean this, because that's not a good look for me. But it's not like in these agreements, you can sort of say, for example... <laughs> it could mean this, or it could mean this. <laughs> You're not allowed to sort of like use diagrams or worked examples or whatever you just have to write in english what you think it means but english is such a tricksy language that you know you potentially can read certain things different ways it's uh... and of course back in the day you know when those contracts were written david you know the formats industry was relatively in its infancy yeah yeah you know the words were not necessarily there to get because certain things really hadn't been defined in in, in quite the same way Probably one of the original formats is um, uh, America's Funniest Videos, and then I think we did the, the UK version. But that actually is a format within itself. Mm. And um, when I was at Disney, that was one of ours, <laughs> I think through ABC Studios, if memory serves me well, and had been running for many years. And what happens is you could then license that internationally. And because what is it? It's just, it's, it's exactly as you said, Justin, it's funny videos. So you can license that with no language on it. So it doesn't have to be in English. You can just visualize it because it's just action rather than words. Hmm. Thank you, Luke. Um, so we're going to come back to you a bit later in the show to talk about your show and tell item. And perhaps you can also just mention about what heroes do because we want to hear a bit more about that. But for now, uh, Luke English, thank you very much. So we haven't done one of our jargon buster segments in a while, and the term we're going to explain today is reverse formatting. And I have to be honest with you, our listener, I don't know what this is either. (laughs) So over to Justin to reveal all. When I am doing ideation workshops for uh, format developers, one of the things that we commonly do, and it's a a well-proven exercise, is to take an existing format and imagine the complete reverse of it. What is interesting is how 
viewers seem to react to that, that actually there's something quite instantly refreshing about rowing against the tide in a very specific way. Mm. And there have been some, you know, interesting examples of that. I mean, Nailed It, in a way, is the reverse formatting of Bake Off and MasterChef and whatever. Mm. It's going from ultimately a pursuit of perfection in cooking and specifically in baking to something that is the complete opposite. Uh, it's also kind of reverse of Pinterest, you know, which is where the whole idea from Nailed It started. It started as a trend against the uh, convention of posting perfect versions of things. And people started to post imperfect versions of things um, as a parody, but also as a reaction against that. And gradually, you know, that evolved into the what I think is an excellent show. So uh, another example, which I love in the in the reality sphere genre is Terrace House. So if you haven't watched Terrace House on Netflix, it's a Japanese reality show. Six strangers, three boys, three girls in a house, getting to know each other, getting to date each other. But its whole tone, its whole style, everything could not be more different from Big Brother and um, you know dating shows in villas like, like Love Island. It's gentle, it's sweet, it's incredibly slow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you really have to settle down and engage with it. And they're pretty kind to each other most of the time. So it's, in a way, it's rowing all the way back to that kind of observational documentary that Big Brother sort of began as, but without the frenetic casting uh, of of people who are going to crash against each other all, all of the time. And that has been a big part of its success. It's run for five series, a couple of films. You know, it is the reverse format of, of that type of genre. What spots all of this off uh, in my mind for this week um, is a show on the Food Network called Nun's Kitchen. (laughs) N-U-N-S. N-U-N-S apostrophe. Mm -hmm. So this is a cooking show, but instead of being broadcast from a warehouse or a studio or um, people whipping things up on TikTok, it is broadcast from a Benedictine monastery in Umbria in Italy. And it consists of four sisters for whom cooking is an integral part of their monastic life. And essentially in this kind of slow, gentle, quite teasing type of show, the four sisters pair up and uh, they take turns to prepare simple dishes with fresh recipes uh, in the monastic kitchen, mm-hmm. and again, we we do not associate cooking with with slowness anymore. We don't associate it with meditation, with uh, enjoyment, with uh, companionship. All the formats that we have are all about. And I mean, you know, chef in your ear is <laughs> my show is the epitome of that. It's like do this as fast as possible with somebody shouting at you while you're doing it. Nun's kitchen could not be further from the, that. Is the complete reverse. You put in your joint of beef for the, for four Hail Marys. <laughs> yes, the measurements are interesting, as you say. Um, you know, and these, you know, these are. I mean, again, what's so great about nuns is that they've had lives before, so the 
Abbess, uh, who's one of the people taking part, was a was an, um, very serious basketball star. Sister Deborah was an architect and a cooking expert. Um, Sister Eleanor has a degree in psychology. So actually, you know, as I have to say with most of the monks and nuns I've ever met in my life, um, the depth and maturity belies the outfit, as it were, because they, they, they've had, they've led relatable and interesting lives before they've taken the cloth. So, but I just think it's this lovely thing about saying, okay, what is the reverse of what we've got on screen? And it's a really good exercise. Um, pointless is the reverse of family fortunes. Mm. And and as we know from the interview that we did, you know, it was devised that way. You know, that was that that was the starting point. Uh, it's fine. You know, the one thing that everybody doesn't know, rather than the, the thing that everybody does, which is more logical and and arguably a better game. <laughs> mm, yeah. The BBC sort of has both bites of the cherry with this. Sometimes I okay. feel. I mean, like for example. Um, they had a format a long time ago called Snog Maria Void, which was a really bizarre that. title for what was actually a make under show where yeah. people who would go out with far, far too much makeup and ex- like eyelash extensions and wigs and false teeth or whatever would, were, were drastically sort of stripped back to the basics and, and tried to give, given a more naturalistic look. And But now, uh, recently, they've now got glow up which is a makeup competition with these outrageous uh, makeup creations mm-hmm. that are you know, mm. rival hollywood and, and a little bit like that they also have um shows like bargain hunt where you go out and buy all sorts of you know tatten objects and things um as, as these collectors often do and then you can get stacy solomon from sort your life out to then get rid of all that stuff all over again <laughs> so. well yeah um that's right and then I mean, that makes me think of a series in Korea. So Korea, South Korea had a whole raft of shows of, of um, people being having plastic surgery to radically alter their um, their appearance. I think one was called The Swan, I think it was called, hmm. uh, where an ugly duckling is turned into a swan. Yeah, I think that's based on an American format, yeah. Yeah, based on plastic. Well, what, you know, which is based on which, we, we don't quite know. But anyway... Subsequently, they had a series about putting about reversing that surgery. Oh, right. Um, so it was kind of more surgery <laughs> to try and put people back to what they used to look like because um, we're going to insert they're... these wrinkles back in and well, inject, yeah, inject the fat in here and <laughs> absolutely. But I mean, literally, because people's appearance was so radically altered that they were psychologically damaged their families you know didn't recognize them um and they felt that they were living a lie because they're effectively wearing a complete mask um and so you know they would start off with a photograph of what they looked like before they had the radical surgery and then they would try to take them back as far as possible to that so you know another reverse format yeah Literally. I've got to go and get my Botox topped up in a minute, so we better <laughs> crack on with the rest of the show. So we're back with Luke English. And uh, Luke, we ask everybody to bring 
really or metaphorically an object to show and tell us that might have an amusing anecdote or something related to your career. Uh, so what have you got to show us today? What, what I've got to show you, don't tell my colleagues in Disney, otherwise they'll arrest me, is a uh, not real Oscar. <laughs> the show and tell story goes like this. Disney owns the license to the Oscars. So if any international broadcasters wish to show the Oscars show, they have to go to Disney and ask permission. When I worked at Disney, my responsibility was to look after Canada, Middle East, Eastern Europe and Africa. So all the broadcasters across all those countries um, I would negotiate with for, for television content for Disney. And I remember one time I was chatting to uh, a very large Canadian broadcaster about the uh, license for the Oscars. And the value of the, the license was something in the region of $25 million, so not small change. It's fairly late at night because I'm dealing in with Canada and I'm negotiating this. And I, I just raised my head off, you know, from, from the, my desk beyond my computer screen. And my office, one of the walls in front of me was, was a see-through glass wall for an in, internal um, office. And as I raised my head, I see a life-sized Mickey Mouse walk past my office, <laughs> followed by a life-sized Minnie Mouse, followed by a life-sized Goofy and Donald Duck. Um, what, what the listeners don't know is that the, the office in Hammersmith, which is the headquarters of, of Disney, each floor had its own particular speciality. So I was on the television floor. There was a games floor. There was a floor that was dedicated to the Disney characters. So whenever Disney had a, a charity event or a premiere uh, and uh, a Mickey Mouse was, was needed, then there would be actors that would be trained particularly to be that particular character <laughs> and it just so happened that the floor was a couple of floors above me so for whatever reason I don't uh, they, they decided that they needed to to go along my corridor to go past my office so um <laughs> there I am trying to concentrate on this deal to make sure I get it done and I'm trying very hard not to laugh down the phone to this Canadian. <laughs> I don't think he would be much amused if I said, excuse me, sorry, I've got to have a laugh. I've just seen a life-size Mickey Mouse walk past, past my office. <laughs> so so um, last thing, just talking about characters, mm. uh, as you have been, I know that you do a podcast called What Heroes Do. So just tell us uh, quickly about that. As, as you've mentioned, I've been very fortunate. I've had lots of different jobs in the entertainment industry. One of them was head of legal for a uh, West End theatre production company. And one of my colleagues was uh, uh, head of marketing. And he contacted me out of the blue quite recently and said, I'm, I'm looking to set up my own podcast, but do it with a little bit, little bit different from the normal. I want to talk about all the latest films and TV series, but I also want to celebrate real life heroes. So he, he came up with the idea of what heroes do. And the premise is we, we talk about the fantasy heroes, the Supermans, the Batmans, the Marvel characters, but we also talk about the real heroes. We get guests on, um, for example, such as nurses and policemen and firemen and those in the social services, and we get them to tell their stories because they're, they're the real superheroes, not, not the, the comic ones. Oh, great idea. So, yeah, we just have a bit of fun with it. Um, Brilliant. Well, all of that is absolutely fantastic, Luke. And we've learned a great deal today and uh, been a very engaging guest. So thank you very much for joining us, Luke English. Well, thank you for having me. And finally, it's time for Justin and I to put ourselves under 
the spotlight as we try another round of four-minute formats where we come up with some kind of formatted entertainment in four minutes. Uh, and as usual, I have a post-it notes ripped up into six pieces that are, are labelled from one to six. So, Justin, I'll invite you to choose which one. Um, two. You, you always go for a low number. I think you've, you've gone Do for I? two, three times. Anyway, okay. number two is Jack. Jack, J-A-C-K. Jack. Okay. Yes. Jack. Well, that's what we have to work with. And we have four minutes starting from now. Well, um, one of the phrases, there's, I don't know Jack, but that is already a quiz for <laughs> You don't know Jack is a gay, yeah, as well, quite yeah. well-known quite quiz a well-known game. game. Yeah. Um, there's Jackass. There's, um, I'm all right, Jack. Jack of all, oh, Jack of all trades. So Jack of all trades is somebody, Jack of all trades, an expert of none, whatever it is. So maybe, maybe the Jack is somebody, maybe it's a show about proving that you're an all rounder. Yeah. So that you go, you have a series of, it could be topics, but it could also be skills. So like a kind of non-sports, um, heptathlon yeah i mean yes it's interesting isn't it because like a lot of these shows it's it is about one particular skill and mm. you know it, if you bake off it's scones one week or bread this another week but this one could be about yeah throwing yourself into um different things there's a, a youtuber called michelle carre uh, who we had as a guest on another podcast i, I helped with and she has a show called challenge accepted where mm-hmm. just for fun, she sort of throws herself into doing absolutely anything. People sort of say, why don't you become a spy? Or why don't you become a wrestler or, or do a boxing match or something? And she goes off and just does it and, and comes up and shows the results. And mm-hmm. I think there's a guy called Mike Boyd, who, uh, again, I've, I've had as a guest on something else. And he tries to teach himself things as quickly as possible. So, he, he, <laughs> so, so you know, like again, it's a similar-ish sort of thing. So, yeah, there, there could definitely be a a, um, a gamified version of something like that. Well, if you took the heptathlon thing, so it was all about speed. <clears throat> so, it wasn't necessarily about how well you did it, though. You, you have, in order to do it quickly, you've got to be able to do it reasonably well. So, you're going to start. You've got two hours or three hours or whatever. Um, you know, you've got to cycle to here, cook an omelette, um, <laughs> get into a tractor, drive across the field to the next thing, and so on and so on. So that each each aspect of it, um, yeah, I quite like this actually. Um, <laughs> so it's a kind of like everyday, everyday heptathlon uh, or triathlon <laughs> or whatever. I mean, having gone to watch my daughter do triathlons, you know, it is kind of exhausting to watch um, as, you know, they fling the bike to one side and jump in the lake, as she did at Blenheim. Um, so, yeah, and then the winner is the winner's the jack. So the winner is the person who's who's demonstrated. It was very renewable mm. because, you know, you can constantly throw in new things. Um, you can feature different. You could set it in some interesting places, so the location itself could offer up, you know, a bakery, a post office round, bell ringing, um, 
and so on and so on. So you have a good local feel to it. I'm trying to think of other other ways of using the word jack. I mean, the other thing I can think of is like to jack something up to, to get something higher and higher and higher. It sort mm-hmm. of like um, reminds me of how they build some of these really ridiculously high skyscrapers these days where they sort of have a tower of floors and then they, they jack them up and then they slide in the next floor underneath them and then really they, well. they jack up the whole thing again. And that's so rather than having people work at height on the top floor, you build the top floors first and then you work down effectively. <laughs> that's fascinating. Gosh. Anyway, uh, that's our time up, unfortunately. Um, But there we are. So it looks like we're probably going to go for uh, Jack of All Trades, the Everyday Haptathlon. Does that sum it up? I think that's that's pretty good. Excellent. Well, there we go. That's our four-minute format for this week. And that's all we have time for for this episode. If you want to get in contact with the show, you can email contact at tvshowandtell.com or you can uh, access, post us, tweet us on that platform anyway, uh, at TV Show Podcast. Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggie. And this has been TV Show and Tell.